Even so, Lord, without your help and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, and much guided and kind and thoughtful and deliberate teaching, much of this will be obscured as in a cloud. We pray now that you push the enemy far away, and that be open arms, open hearts, open minds to receive the word, and that you guide Corey as he preaches to your glory and to our understanding that we may live in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Corey Garrett. I'm a member here at the barn and really excited to be sharing with you this morning. We're going through a series at the barn where we're uh, preaching through Uh, each book of the Bible and just sharing, thinking about what is the message of this book? What would we miss if this book wasn't in the Bible? Uh, What do we learn about the gospel from this book? Today we've ended up at 2 Samuel, and so we're covering more or less from the death of Saul, uh, that moment to the time when David hasn't quite taken the throne, and he takes the throne, and then the rest of his life. So 2 Samuel is what we're looking at. So I really love the outdoor worship area. Being here and worshiping outdoors and you can see the trees and you can look down at the brook down there, I just love it. Now would you say that me enjoying being here is heroic? Probably not. If you have a a person and he meets a friend for coffee, is that heroic? Well, you probably wouldn't say that. So a lot of people look at David and they say, hey, this is a man after God's own heart. He must be a hero. He must be somebody that we should emulate. Now, My thesis here is not that David is not a hero, but a a big piece of it is when we look at David, we shouldn't say, hey, this is a hero, somebody we need to emulate. He's just somebody who knows what's good and good for him. And he's responding appropriately to the incentives that are in front of him. He knows that God is good, and so he walks with God. He enjoys God. What we're looking at today is kind of that phrase, a man after God's own heart. But we're not looking at the man. We're looking at God's own heart. So what can we learn about God's own heart from David? That's what we want to look at today. We want to look, about, look at not what made God react to David the way he did, but what made David react to God the way he did. What's special about God that David did the things that he did? Now, what do I mean by this? David asked the Lord what to do. We can see from that that God is wise. 2 Samuel 2.1 After this, David asked the Lord, should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. Then David asked, which town should I go to? To Hebron, the Lord answered. God is wise, and he's willing to share his wisdom with David. If you have an incredibly wise counselor and you go to this person for advice, you're not a hero. You just know what's good and good for you. If I'm on a car trip and I'm getting sleepy and I pull over to a Starbucks and I order what I always do, which is a sweet cream cold brew coffee, I'm not really revealing any heroic tendency in myself. I'm just revealing my need. And I'm revealing that that cold brew is really good for me. That's what I need. And that's what David does again and again in his life. Now, you also have an incredible, incredibly wise counselor. This same God is ready to 
not only be wise, but share his wisdom with you. Now, you note in this passage, David's not asking about huge things. He's just asking about where he should move, if he should move, and where he should move to. So for you too, if you have a practical need, a, a job question, a moving question, God is ready to respond to you. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It doesn't necessarily mean God's going to speak to you directly, as he does in this passage, but God will guide you in circumstances, the Word, and other believers. Sometimes he doesn't guide you, gives you a choice for what you want to do. Uh, he blesses the choices that are in front of you, but he will direct you. He is a wise counselor that we can approach without fear, just like David did, and get wisdom for living. What else do we learn about God's heart from David's story? David thanks the Lord and acknowledges God's work in his life, and we can see from that that God is good. After a great victory over his enemies in Psalm 18, David says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, who rescued me from my enemies. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings. When God does something in David's life, he thanks God, and he acknowledges that God has done something for him. Now, in everyday life, when somebody opens the door for you, you say, thanks. If you have a flat tire by the side of the road and somebody stops and helps you, you say, thank you. You don't just, like, stare at this person. Uh, I often have had this in my life. Maybe you can relate to this. When I've had a big project uh, and I'm working on this project and I'm like, it's just all the pieces are, of this project are, are, are in disarray. God, I need help. Then, you know, as I'm continuing to work on the project, things go well. I, I figure out where I'm, where I'm going. I figure out what I'm doing. And then I, I think to myself, well, I guess I didn't need to pray after all. I, 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 did, I do have this. I, okay, do you guys do that too? I, I do that all the time. I find myself just doing that. But David didn't do that. He said, God did this in my life. Thank you, Lord. So when we read the Bible and it touches us, when he answers a prayer, when we have a problem that he helps us with, we shouldn't then turn around and say, oh, I do have this afterward. After all, we should just say, it's the Lord who did this. Thank you, Lord. It's pretty simple. David thanks God, and we should too. He's the one who sustains each part of creation and our lives. We should thank him not because it's heroic, but just because it makes sense. Acknowledging God's goodness and so completing the circle of Psalm fifty fifteen, In the day of trouble, call on me. I'll answer you, and you'll give me glory. What else do we learn from David's story? This one's a little bit complex. Let's look at the story. David fears the Lord. From that, we, we learn that God is holy. Let me read you the story. This is Second Samuel 6. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bela of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which is on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart. They carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out with his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. 
So Uzzah died right there beside the Ark of God. Now, this story was one of those ones that really troubled me as a child. I thought, this is a little bit vindictive here. You know, he just reaches out to steady the, the Ark of God as, it, as it's about to fall off of this cart. Obviously, I never studied this passage in depth because when you go to the commentaries, all the commentaries tell you they were doing it wrong. So in the Torah, you're instructed how to carry the ark. You have the poles that go through the, the rings on the bottom of the ark, and you lift it up, and they, they carry it on these, on these poles on the shoulders, right? So here they are. They're doing it not like they were instructed to, but on a new cart, which earlier in the story, when the ark gets transported by the Philistines, this is the way the Philistines do it. They transport it on a cart. There's also like a big blanket that goes over the ark and then a leather case that goes around it. So there's no way that this should have happened. And when Uzzah reached out his hand to study it, it was just the culmination of a, a series of, of errors on the part of the team that was transporting this, uh, this ark. So this is troubling, but there is a, a logic to it. In the scriptures, anytime somebody touched or looked at the ark, or offered a, a, a sacrifice that they weren't allowed to, they were killed. Now, I, I don't think we're in danger of this happening today. Um, there are different times in salvation history that God puts different emphases in front of us and just trying to teach us something. And I think right here, it's a time when God's trying to teach us about his holiness. But the question to us is, do we know that God is not a doddering, indulgent, semi-blind uncle, but a consuming fire? When we come to church, when we receive communion, when we read our Bibles, are we aware that this is still the same God that we worship? When you are cold and you come to a fire and you warm yourself by the fire, that's not very heroic. That's just logical. But when you stick your hand in the fire, that's also not very heroic. It's just dumb. And this is what Uzzah does. And I, I hope that we have a sense of, as we approach a holy God, we shouldn't approach him in a way that's stupid, that doesn't acknowledge who he is. The thing that we need to take away from Uzzah is, this is what we deserve. Instant death. And this is what we risk when we approach God in the wrong way. But the story continues. David was now afraid of the Lord. Very logical. David is a logical guy. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom in Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire th household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went there and brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the Ark of, God, of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. If Uzzah is a picture of what we deserve, Obed-Edom is a picture of what we stand to gain if we are with the Lord, if we stay in the presence of the Lord. David wants that, and so this time he does it right. You see, they're carrying the Ark of the Lord. He does it according to the instructions. He does it with sacrifice, 
and he does it with great joy. Tim Chester, in his commentary on this passage, says this. One of the great tensions of the Bible is this. You can't live with God, and you can't live without him. He's the holy God who might break out against us because of our sin, but he's also the good God who is the source of all that's good. When God eventually abandons his stubborn people in judgment upon them, the land is laid waste, and the population is taken into exile. The message is clear. He's saying to them that the food that you eat, the sun and the sky, the laughter you enjoy, the land in which you live, they all come from God. And God's great intent for his people throughout the Bible story is not to destroy them, but to bless them with his presence. So the good news is that there is an answer to the haunting question of verse 9. How can the presence of the Lord ever come to me? Do we understand his holiness? And do we understand the blessing that comes from him? Let's approach him in his holiness in the right way and just receive from him the blessings that he wants to give to us. What else do we learn from David about God's own heart? The ark is now in Jerusalem. David starts thinking to himself, I'd like to build a temple for the Lord. But God preempts him and sends Nathan to him to tell him this. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I'll provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This little story, I want to pull out two things. The first is that David receives God's gifts. And we see from that that God is generous and gracious. David wants to serve God, but look what God says. Um, David, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings here, but you were a shepherd boy. And look where I got you. Now you want to do something for me? Uh, don't bother. I'm doing this for you. Don't think you're going to pay me back. Grace got you here. The provision is from God. It's not from David. David wants to build God's house. But God said, look, I'm building your house. One study Bible has this note on this passage. How easily our imaginations can be captured by and our energies exhausted by what we want to build for God when what he really wants is for us to sit attentively witnessing what he is building so that we may marvel and give him thanks. If you think that you are a hero for the Lord, look out. I'm not saying look out for judgment. I'm saying look out for the blessings that he has put around you. God asked David to trust him and let him be 
the hero of his story. All he wants is for David to say, okay, Lord, I understand. I'm never going to outgive you. Second, David believes God's promises. You guys remember back to Abraham. Abraham believed God. And David also believes God. In the prayer of thanks that follows this passage, David thanks God as if he's already done it. He just pours out his heart saying, I can't believe you're going to do that. Has he done it yet? No, he hasn't done it yet. But he believes him. David believes God's promises, and so we see how trustworthy God is. He's so trustworthy just based on past fulfilled promises. If he promises something, you know he's going to fulfill it. What else do we learn from David? David repents, and we see God is merciful. I'm not going to inflict this whole story on you, but David sees a woman that he wants. He rapes her. He tries to cover it up, and when that doesn't work, he kills the husband. This is not David at his finest. This is not the story, as Lee Power says, this is not the story of a godly man who was led astray by a seductive, conniving woman. It's the story of a godly man who fell into sin because he was led astray and enticed by his own evil desires. It's a very sad story. Seeing where David's come from and how he's walked with the Lord and then how he throws it all the way. All the way. Then the prophet Nathan comes to David to confront him. And David, after he realizes what he's done, says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now this moment should call us back to the story in Saul where Saul does a big sin. He does a big bad thing. We don't have time to go through the whole story, but you remember when Samuel confronts Saul. Saul's caught. He's, he's caught in the act. So is David. The prophet comes and says, guy, you have not been doing the wrong thing, the right thing here. Saul evades and gives excuses. I, it is, it, Saul's speech is so typical of speeches I have heard from other people caught in sin. Yes, but you shouldn't have been poking around in other people's business. Yes, but my my real sin was not loving myself enough. Yes, but God has forgiven me, and so should you. Yes, but so-and-so made me do it. David's real apology, I've sinned, turns away wrath. 1 John 1, 9, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, Tim Chester on this passage says, If you think of God simply as the judge or the king, then you'll never come to him. You'll hide your sin from him. But God is the Father who loves you with unfailing love and great compassion. His mercy is greater than your sin, even if you've committed adultery and murder. If you come to him with a broken heart, he will not despise you. He will be gentle with you and restore to you the joy of your salvation. Now, I know that some of you think that you will never be 100% clean. You will always be a second-class Christian. Things that have happened in your life in the past that you think are continuing to separate you from the Lord. It's counterintuitive. It's not minimizing the sin that gets us freedom. It's admitting the sin fully and completely. 
and throwing ourselves on the mercy of the Lord. Isaiah 118, I love this verse. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There was a, a story recently in the paper. There was a, a group of people at the capital, uh, in the capital area, and they were struck by lightning. Did you guys read, the, read about this? There were several people who were actually killed, and there was one lady who survived. So what did she say after she got out of the hospital and she's kind of walking around? Well, I feel like I have a new life. I want to live my life in a new way. This is what Jesus offers us. We did have a near-death experience, in a sense, because when we sin, we deserve to die. But we didn't just die in a metaphorical sense. Jesus really, in reality, in history, took that death so we could have that kind of new life. So we could turn around and say, that life is over. I'm living a new life, and I'm going to make a change. I'm going to live it differently. God shows his heart here. And it is merciful. So was David a man after God's own heart? He kind of was. I mean, he definitely says it in the Bible. So just because he didn't do it perfectly doesn't mean he wasn't a man after God's own heart. But it, he wasn't perfect, and that's the reality. Uh, now, how did David get so smart that he was able to know to trust God, to depend on God, to thank God, to acknowledge God? Well, he had the Torah. I mean, at some point, he had his own life experience to go back to. But in the beginning, really, he has the Torah, and he has the experience that comes from trusting God based on what he reads in the Bible. Now, how do we get this wisdom? How do we know how to live with God as a person after God's own heart? Well, it's in the Bible. We're doing it right now. We hear these stories. We live them out. And then as we gain life experiences, we're walking with the Lord, we get to trust him more and more, get to know him more and more. Now, David did all these good things, but he didn't do them all the time. God did, David did not ask God's advice before he called Bathsheba to the palace. He did not uh, ask for forgiveness after he let crazy stuff happen in his, his household, incest and rape, and didn't do anything about it. But this is a gospel story. It's good news. God loves this adulterer, this murderer. But we must look further for the perfect, the man after God's own heart. Now, the hinge of this story is David's big failure. The hinge of other biblical characters is also their big failure. Adam's big failure. Uh, Moses' big failures. But where others were tempted and fell, Jesus was tempted and succeeded. Jesus is the true hero. He's the hero of this story. He's the true David. He's the one who lived up to the promise that we see in David's life. Jesus was the king that David himself could never be. Now, you might ask yourself, well, you're really shifting gears here, aren't you, Corey? Why are you shifting gears to Jesus all of a sudden? But Jesus is in this story. He's in the Messianic prophecy. I want to go back a little bit to uh, what I read before. I will raise up one of your descendants, God says, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house 
for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, there's a near and a far completion to this prophecy. So Solomon builds the temple. That's the near completion. But there's also a far completion. There's actually a few far completions, but the big far completion is Jesus building a house for God's name. So uh, Mark Twain says uh, this about history, but it's also true of prophecy that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So we look for these rhyming prophecies. So every time you have a Davidic king, that's a fulfillment of the prophecy. But when you look at uh, these, uh, these, these, these prophecies, and you look, look at this thing where it says, I will build a house. Second Samuel 7.13 He shall build a house for my name. So you see Samuel building the temple. Look at this passage in Hebrew, and you'll see the word house and house is used it's the same in English as it is in Hebrew. It's the same word for this dynasty, this Davidic dynasty, and also the temple. So we can say, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. It's not You're not saying my, the physical structure of my house is going to serve the Lord, but my, my offspring, my family, my family group is going to serve the Lord. So it's the same word for house, family, and house, temple. Solomon builds a temple. Jesus builds a house, a family, for God's name. You have this amazingly, uh, surprisingly, in Second Corinthians six sixteen. For we are the temple of the living God. This near completion of Solomon in the temple is the far completion of Jesus in the church. We right now are the new humanity, united in Christ and with each other, and the house that God promised to David is us. The focal point of God's presence in the in the world was the temple. And now the focal point of God's presence in the world is you guys and me. There's a bit more here. Uh, there's not many cross-references from Second Samuel in the New Testament. But I was looking at one in particular. Now flip to Second Corinthians 6 if you have your Bibles with you, because I want you to underline this or star this in some way, if you're a Bible-writing type of person. Second Corinthians 6. This is the same passage here where we say, we are the temple of the living God. I'm in 2 Corinthians 6. I'm starting with verse 16. I'm just going to go 16 to 18. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among the unbelievers and separate yourself from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. First thing we got to note here. Sons and daughters is in the Greek. This isn't sons, and it really means sons and daughters. The word sons is there, the word and is there, and the word daughters is there. But what's the move here? Do you guys remember what the prophecy was? The prophecy to David was, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. In 2 Corinthians, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is applying this messianic prophecy to us in our union with Christ. 
Jesus, the, the promised Davidic king through his life and death and resurrection, made us be in union with him and has made us sons and daughters of God. So there's two things that we can see here. God is our father. We're sons and daughters. So let's look at the, the, God, let's look at the God is the father. God is our father part. You might be, after hearing this whole sermon about how God is good, God is wise, he, were, he forgives and all that, you might be wondering, I wonder if God is good for me. God's good for David, but is he good for me? Is he good to me? Is he merciful to me like he was to David? We don't deserve this good good God. We don't deserve God's goodness. We deserve us' fate. But what we could expect God to do for Christ, God will do for us now. The goodness, the generosity, the wisdom. Second part is we are sons and daughters. When God talks about I will be their father, I will be their God and they will be my people. He's always talking about covenant faithfulness. Not they'll be my people and they'll be sinning all the time, but they'll really be holding up covenant faithfulness. For us to be sons and daughters, we really need a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 31 has some echoes in the 2 Corinthians 16 passage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18 passage. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. New hearts. New hearts that are able to do what God wants us to do. Look at 6, 16 through 18. I will live in them, walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. We'll be walking in covenant faithfulness. That is what Jesus is doing here. When he says, I'm going to make you sons and daughters. There's something else here. God is taking the messianic promise and applying it to us. And some of the messianic roles or call belongs to us as well. We're carrying on the mission of the Messiah. We're empowered supernaturally to do this. The Spirit of the Lord Church is upon us because he's chosen us and set us apart to proclaim the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to proclaim the covenant faithfulness of God. It's in Jesus and unpacking what he did for us that we can most clearly see God's own heart, the wise, good, holy, generous heart of God that's gracious to us beyond what we could imagine. Jesus is the true man of, after God's own heart, and he makes us sons and daughters of God. He gives us a new relationship with God as Father and new hearts so that we can live as his sons and daughters. If you are considering the call of Jesus, or maybe you have come to Jesus in some way, but you're thinking about going all in, I hope you can understand from what we've said here why we call Jesus good news. He is the love that you've been waiting for, the wisdom you don't have, the mercy that you need. 
Lay down your weapons and your polite excuses. And I don't say run to him. Just open your arms. He's running to you already. He is the hero that you've been waiting for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it convinces us of your great love for us. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts so that we could fully receive it. We thank you for your heart, Lord, and how it is for us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things because he has secured these things for us. Amen.